Welcome to Aston Means Business, a new podcast from Aston Business School. My name's Steve Dyson, and I'm a journalist who's going to be interviewing some of the UK's top business academics every month here at Aston. Our first podcast is all about what to do when the money runs out. And I'll be talking to Chris Umfraville, a lecturer in law here at Aston Business School. Chris is an expert in company law with a focus on insolvency, covering areas like administration and company voluntary arrangements known as CVAs. He'll be explaining what happens when cash flows turn sour for businesses and why they are legally bound to take action when they no longer have the financial ability to trade. Hello to you, Chris. Hi, Steve. Nice to be here with you today. Well, thanks very much for taking the time. Tell us about your background, Chris. Um, you haven't always been in the academic world, have you? No, that's right. I, I joined academia in 2012. And prior to that, I was a solicitor at um, international law firm Eversheds, now Eversheds Sutherland, um, where in my time of practice, I focused on banking and restructuring work, um, advising banks and insolvency practitioners working through accountancy firms um, on a number of different cases, both when a client was facing financial difficulties and then when it had gone into an insolvency process, um, dealing with that process and the aftermath of it. So I was involved with a number of different um, cases across different sectors, some involving household names, uh, working on the automotive sector, um, on high street brands, um, driving schools, football clubs, a hotel chain. So quite a diverse practice whilst I was, uh, whilst I was in practice. I want to start asking you what happens when a business's cash flows are turning sour. What are they legally obliged to do? What do they have to do? Well, typically when a, the directors of a company are running that company, they owe a duty to the company and in turn the shareholders. When a company finds itself insolvent, i.e. it can't pay its debts, then the company has to consider the interests of the creditors. Uh, in the general course of things, if everything's been running smoothly, the creditors are soon to get paid. As soon as the company becomes insolvent, then the directors have to focus on the interests of the creditors. So if a company finds itself insolvent, unable to pay its debts as they fall due, um, then the directors have to take some form of action. Otherwise, they run the risk of facing some level of personal liability. And, and just to um, have a bit of a focus on this very recent case of Thomas Cook, um, can, can, can I just ask you what went on there? Was that a, an insolvency situation? Why did, why did the director suddenly have to say, no, enough's enough, um, hundreds of millions of pounds we are now facing and we can't see a way out of this? What went through their heads when they were making that decision to, to basically strand 150,000 UK tourists abroad? So the Thomas Cook um, example is a really interesting one, actually. Lots of different things going on there. So the company went into compulsory liquidation. And that was a court-ordered process. The official receiver, who is um, a civil servant based within the insolvency service, is appointed as the liquidator. But in this case, um, we saw the appointment of special managers to manage certain parts of the business. So from two different insolvency practitioner firms, we've had special managers appointed to look after um, you know, the hotels element, the uh, the airline business etc um, and they are sort of helping the official receiver in that sense um, because of the complexity and also the resource needed to to manage that process um, with with Thomas Cook 
there were a lot of factors that affected the uh, the demise of the company. So it had been in restructuring talks for quite a number of weeks. Um, and when it looked like a, a deal had been done, there was a, a demand for further cash to be provided and that cash wasn't forthcoming. Uh, an appeal was even made to the government to underwrite that, but unfortunately it wasn't available. Um, and so the directors had to, to, to take steps because of their personal responsibility at that point. Lots of different factors yes. undermining the, um, the the business of Thomas Cook. Um, so it's a, a traditional bricks and mortar business, 550-odd stores on the high street. Despite the fact they'd made some closures in recent times, that's quite an overhead. Um, with a lot of online competition, um, entries into the market as well. So Jet Tours being increasing presence. We've seen EasyJet enter the, um, the package holiday market as well. Um, also, it's had other factors that perhaps outside of its control. So in 2018, both the heat wave and the World Cup led to people not booking holidays overseas, certainly not last minute holidays. So their, um, their sort of profits went down. Um, certain destinations have struggled recently. So we've had terror attacks, say in Tunisia, um, which obviously affected people's willingness to go to places like that. Um, we've had since the 2016 um, referendum, we've seen currency devaluation so sterling depreciates um, which has meant that you know, people booking um, in, in GB pounds and then having to pay out in alternative currencies um, and then there's the, the big uncertainty of Brexit at the moment of, right. of people not necessarily wanting to commit their finances consumer confidence is sort of decreasing at the moment um, so all those different factors really contributed and if you look a bit further back in 2011 there was a bailout then and some would say that perhaps there was too much debt in the company and it struggled to, to manage that debt, really. So lots of different factors. Yeah. I think it illustrates the fact that there are often lots of things at play when a company finds itself in this position. It's very complex, isn't it? That, that's just one example, of course, Thomas Cook, which happened uh, last uh, last month at near towards the end of September. But when the money starts to run out, just to get it clear in my mind, um, for those directors who you said had to face up to their responsibilities, what are their legal responsibilities? What what do they have to do? And is there any option in what they have to do? So the responsibility is to the creditors. They have to protect the best interest of the creditors. They have some options as to how that could be achieved. And really, what they can do depends on when they act as to what is a viable outcome in that situation. Um, so there's a, a risk for directors if they carry on trading whilst insolvent, they could be liable for wrongful trading, and therefore they might have to contribute towards the company's assets to pay off the company's creditors. What they choose to do, it depends on what the viable outcome is. We mentioned earlier that for some businesses, it's just reached the end of its natural lifetime. There's nobody interested in taking that business on, in which case there's not really anything other than a terminal process for that, a winding down of that business. Um, in some situations, it may be that there's a fundamentally viable business, but just perhaps the, the company running it has entered difficulties or is carrying too many liabilities and some sort of rescue could be achieved. I was looking at some, some of the phrases involved in this subject and I, and I thought it might be quite interesting to, to ask you to decipher what's going on with these jargon words. Let me ask you what corporate insolvency means. So corporate insolvency is essentially just the insolvency of corporates, the inability of a company to pay its debts. So um, there's different tests for that. So it could be that um, your cash flow insolvency, you can't pay your debts as, you fall, as they fall due. It could be that your balance sheet insolvent, so that your, your liabilities are greater than your assets. Um, 
Or it could be that you failed to pay a specific debt. So, for example, you were served with a statutory demand for uh, payment for a sum in excess of £750. If you don't settle that debt within three weeks, you could then be subject to a further um, you know, winding up petition. A very common one, calling in the administrators. Now, that sounds uh, quite friendly in some ways, but it's a bit more than that, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's a bit of a colloquialism, really. Before administration, we had receivership, which had a much less formal appointment process. And the term calling in the administrators really sort of stemmed from that. What it means is the appointment of administrators. And there are different ways in which you can appoint an administrator. The first is that the, the holder of security, known as a qualifying floating charge holder, can appoint an administrator. That will typically be a bank or other lenders with the relevant security. Also, it's possible that the company or the company's directors could seek to appoint an administrator over a company. And both of these are known as out-of-court appointments, which are just done by the filing of certain paperwork. It's quicker and cheaper than going through a court process. But there is a third way to appoint administrators, by making an application to the court, and the court will then consider the case and if appropriate, make an order for the appointment of administrators. And that's open to the security holder and the uh, company, its directors, but also a wider range of stakeholders. What's important to bear in mind is the consequence of calling in the administrators or appointing the administrators. Once they're appointed, the administrator will take over the responsibility for running of the company. The directors remain in office, but they're sidelined from the day-to-day operations unless the administrators specifically bring them in to carry out certain functions. Now, it's important to remember that the administrator will owe a duty to the creditors to achieve the best possible result out of the administration. This may lead to them continuing to trade the business of the company during administration or potentially seeking a sale of the business or its assets to raise money for the creditors. Another important aspect to bear in mind is the fact that creditors will be prevented from taking individual action against the company when it is in administration. There's something called a moratorium in place. Essentially, the creditors have to act collectively rather than individually at this point. It gives the administrator some breathing space in order to focus on achieving the best outcome for all of the creditors. But, for example, if you had a landlord that was owed rent historically, he wouldn't be able to try and claim for that rent or to forfeit the lease during the administration um, because that could undermine what the administrator was trying to achieve. Another colloquialism, if you like, um, is the term corporate rescues, because again, that sounds great, you know, um, lifeboats being sent out and, and, and helping people to recover. But again, corporate rescues have got a lot of different meanings, haven't they? Yeah, it's a broad term, corporate rescue. And, and broadly, it can come down to two things. Are you rescuing the company itself, so the, the legal entity that's running the business, or are you saving the business being run by the company? In certain situations, the company will survive the process. In other situations, the company can't be saved, but the business could be extracted, transferred to another legal entity, which then carries on the running of that business. And that can be facilitated through different ways. So it could be through an informal arrangement or if the company is insolvent perhaps through a company voluntary arrangement a CVA that we've mentioned earlier on or an administration. I'm going to throw another term at you Chris pre-pack administration what on earth does that mean it sounds like someone going to the supermarket to me. So pre-pack administration is basically where um, the business of the company is sold to another company as soon as administrators are appointed so essentially Prior to the company going to administration, it's identified that it can't avoid the process, um, but a purchaser is lined up, uh, a deal is agreed, and immediately after the administration commences, or, or very soon after the administration commences, the sale is completed. Um, 
it's known as prepackaged administration because the, the sale is essentially prepackaged and then just delivered on administration. It's often also referred to as um, an accelerated M and A process, so merger and acquisition. So another entity buys the business. I understand. Uh, another one which sounds friendly to me um, is company voluntary arrangements. Um, what we know in the trade, you might say, as CVAs. Yeah, absolutely. And CVAs are quite big in the media at the moment. Um, Essentially, this is a a rescue process which is intended to rescue the company itself. And it essentially sees the company reaching an arrangement with its unsecured creditors to either defer payments of its debts or reduce the debt burden, or quite often a combination of the two. So it may be that you agree that, okay, a certain amount is owed, but we'll pay it back to you over the next three to five years, and we'll pay you 75% of what we owe you. Now, that's not great because you're not getting fully repaid as a creditor, but it's probably a lot better than the alternative of the company were to go into an administration or even at worst, a liquidation process. Um, But it's to be agreed with the creditors. So it's a form of contract is formed by the creditors. 75% of the unsecured creditors have to agree to the terms um, that are being proposed. So in the media, we often hear about that happening where people tell the landlord that they can't afford the rent anymore and that they are going to have a CVA where they invite the landlord to accept a lower rate. Is that an example? Yes, so CVAs, one of the reasons they've been in the media lately is because of their use, um, particularly in retail, where uh, we've got businesses that operate across a number of stores trying to reduce their rent burden. So they might be in financial difficulty generally, but one of the issues they're trying to address is unprofitable stores. So there's a lot of flexibility within the CVA process, and one of the things it's been used to do is to... um, manage the leasehold portfolio. So saying to landlords, well, these stores are loss-making, we want to end our um, contractual arrangement with those leases. These are struggling, so we'll pay you less rent, but you're still getting some rent. And sometimes as well, you'll see the payment profile changing. So it's typical in commercial leasehold arrangements to have rent paid every quarter, but perhaps you move to a monthly payment of rent instead. So it allows you to manage that relationship with the landlord going forward. And of course, both these areas, what we've discussed there as pre-packs, if you like, and CVAs, they're both major ways in which a company continues in, in some way or form. And I understand you've done quite a lot of research on both. So so what's what's the best one to, to opt for if you get the chance? Or how do you opt for them and, and which ones work? Tell us about your research. Okay, so it, it really depends on a number of factors facing the, uh, the business and, and the companies running those businesses. So... I was involved in the uh, the Graham Review in 2014, um, which reviewed the use of prepackaged administrations. Uh, and we did quite a lot of um, empirical research looking at the outcomes of prepack processes. And also in 2018, I was involved with a report for R3, the Association of Business Recovery Professionals, where we looked at the outcomes of CVA processes as well to see uh, what was happening and to evaluate whether or not they were being successful or whether the which process was failing. It very much depends on the individual businesses when you think about who who won. Um, In a follow-up to the CVA study that I did, I've also done some further research on pre-packs from 2013. So the CVA study looked at CVAs commencing in 2013. I've looked at 
pre-packs from 2013. So you can actually evaluate like for like and the similar economic situation that these businesses were facing. We found that the companies had a fairly poor survival rate that were entering into CVA. So of the 552 CVAs involving companies in England and Wales in 2013, only um, 18.5% actually saw the company come out of that process. 65.2% of those processes saw the, the CVA terminated early, so the company didn't survive. It perhaps went through another process, so maybe administration or liquidation afterwards, um, which may have seen the business survive. Um, but essentially two-thirds of these CVAs were being terminated without actually rescuing the company as a going concern, with around a third either completing in accordance with their terms or still ongoing at the end of that period, so potentially likely to result in, um, in a survival of the company. So if you look at it on face value, you think, are the companies surviving? Well, two-thirds aren't and perhaps more. That doesn't look like they're being very successful. Contrast that with prepacks where you see a business rescue, so the business of the company transferred to a new entity and carried on by that entity. Over the same period, a survey of 120 prepacks saw that survival of the purchaser was nearly 60%. Wow. So on the face of it, prepacks ensure survival of businesses more regularly than CVAs do. However, who are we looking at in terms of success? So what's the impact on the stakeholders of these processes? So one of the things we evaluated in the CVA report was, um, okay, a number of CVAs were terminating early, but they were carrying on for quite some period. So a number were carrying on for you know, two, three, three and a half, four years. So the way the CVA works is the company will make regular contributions into the CVA, which go towards paying back the creditors in accordance with the terms agreed in the CVA itself. So money was being accrued. What was happening with that money? And we found that although the CVA was terminating early and perhaps the company was going into another insolvency process, there was a return being paid to creditors, especially when the company traded in the CVA for more than 18 months. So in that sense, creditors were seeing a decent return and those returns were often above 10p in the pound. And we found that the longer the CVA went on for before terminating, the higher the proportion of the dividend as against what was offered was being paid. So in that sense, yes, the company didn't survive ultimately, but creditors were seeing a better return than they would have seen in a prepack or a liquidation. Flip over to look at prepacks in the same period, and there we found that credit returns were a lot worse. So um, unsecured credit returns were very low, frequently no, not being paid. Um, so fewer than a third of cases saw a return to an unsecured creditor. And when it was paid, it was frequently less than 5p in the pound. So unsecured creditors were fa faring much worse. We also look at the role of secured and preferential creditors. So when we talk about secured creditors, you're talking about banks that have got security over the company's assets, typically. Preferential creditors will be employees owed certain amounts of wages and holiday pay and pension contributions. Now, in a CVA, you can't change these individuals' rights. You have to pay them what they're due unless they consent to changing. In a prepack, that doesn't apply in the same way. So in a prepack, we were seeing that the returns to these creditors weren't always fantastic. Certainly preferential creditors often weren't paid. So when we say which is better, what has yeah. the better, better outcome, it very much depends on which angle you look at it from.
Ultimately, the CVA terminates early, the employees might lose their job. But one of the things we found in our research was that the period that the CVA continued for was almost offered a soft landing for the various stakeholders. So prepared for it. Absolutely. So customers who are relying on that company could perhaps think, okay, we've got a warning sign here. We could try and diversify our interest. Everyone always thinks back to the MG Rover collapse in 2005 and the knock-on effect that had in the Longbridge area of lots of companies that were feeding into the supply chain in the local community. And so it, it gives us those customers an opportunity to diversify it gives employees an opportunity to think about alternative options whereas in a prepack whilst if the business is saved and carried on by another entity the employees automatically transfer across so their jobs are saved if the company purchasing the business ultimately fails which it does in 35 percent of the cases the sample that i looked at then those employees will ultimately lose their jobs further down the line Now, again, I'm going to refer back to the Thomas Cook collapse of last month. There was a lot of anger in the, in the media from, um, from people like, well, from customers and, and other stakeholders who were saying, how, how come the, the directors who've been leading the business through all these stark times when they need hundreds of millions of pounds to support the business, but they've been taking out millions, and I mean tens of millions, between a number of um, chief executives over a number of years, and then when it goes bump, they still keep all that money. Uh, is there any way of getting money back from directors if they've be- behaved in- irresponsibly? This is part of a, a wider issue around corporate governance and executive pay, which is currently in the spotlight and is being looked into in, in quite a lot of detail. It is possible to review certain actions that have taken place before a company became insolvent and certain improper transactions could be addressed. And certainly you've seen in relation to Thomas Cook that the business secretary has written to the insolvency service asking that this be looked into in detail. So potentially there may be. Obviously, it depends on what happened, when it happened, and the status of that company at the time which those transactions took place. Running out of money for a business can obviously be a nightmare. We've heard that from you. But from what you've started to explain, all is not necessarily lost. No, running out of money obviously is a problem, but there are ways to address that. I think one of the key things is addressing things early. But if you address things early, there are options available to you. So negotiating with customers, speaking with lenders, taking on professional advice, it needn't be drastic. There are opportunities to address things um, and you can use these processes to produce a viable outcome. So when we go back to the CVA process and its use, one of the things we identified was there are a significant number of CVAs which terminated quite early. So perhaps CVA wasn't the right thing for those companies. But if you address things early, you've got a better chance of getting the right advice and picking the right process to have the best possible outcome for all parties. For business leaders listening, give us a quick summary of your advice on company law in terms of what do they need to be thinking about and acting on when money starts to run out. I think the key thing is to keep on top of things, really understand where you are. So keep your management accounts up to date, make sure everyone's informed and be proactive if you face situations. Make changes if you need to, take advice from experienced professionals. Problems won't solve themselves. The insolvency processes we've talked about aren't a panacea in themselves. Simply going into a CVA won't address the problems that have led the company to need to go into the CVA. So you need to identify the problems and address those problems, whether that be inside an insolvency process or outside of an insolvency process. Um, The earlier you address things, 
the greater the chance perhaps of avoiding a formal insolvency process. But if not, certainly the earlier you address things, the better chance of a better outcome from that process. Chris Umfreville, many thanks for taking the time to speak to Aston Means Business. I think you've given us a great set of valuable legal and business insights on what to do when the money runs out. This was the first of a series of 10 monthly podcasts from here at Aston Business School. Our next podcast will be with Cathy Daniels. She's an employment expert here at Aston Business School, and she'll be talking to us about how to sack bad staff. Aston Business School. It's not just business as usual. Why? Because Aston means business. Thanks for listening.